0: the city has a 147 million dollar surplus could this money help fund a much-needed revitalization for calgary's downtown with insight we are joined by deborah yedlin president and ceo of calgary chamber good morning to you deborah good morning let's uh, let's get right into this and and talk about the downtown vacancy rate in the city what are we at right now
1: so we're in that 27 percent range right now so we've seen a drop a you know of about almost three percent since uh the last quarter that we had statistics so that's a good sign however we still have a long way to go you know some people think that it'll take us till 2030 to get us into that uh, sort of mid teens or low, you know, uh, sort of above 10% range in order to uh, sort of deal with the, the vacancy rates. We, we, we still have a long way to go, but definitely being below 30%, I guess, is a, is a good sign we're going in the right direction.
2: Deborah, are you a fan of these office to residential conversion products? We heard yesterday about a couple of them. 400 residential units will take 414,000 square feet of empty office space off the market. That seems like great news. It's good news because
1: it takes, you know, it also brings a vibrancy downtown. And I think one of the things we have to remember is that if we want a vibrancy downtown, we need to have more people living and and working downtown because it also brings services, it brings small businesses, it changes the texture of downtown, and it brings sort of a life to it that is 24 hours a day as opposed to really confined to the uh, to the working hours. And of course, if there are entertainment events uh, going on in the evenings, so this is actually a very important step in the right direction. Having said that, is every building that is vacant suited to being converted to residential? That's a good question. That's for developers and for the city to assess. I would argue that that's probably not the case. And so there'll be some more decisions being made in terms of what will be converted versus potentially demolished.
0: You know, reimagining Calgary's downtown has been kind of like the house band. We we, we talked about it <laughs> True. since before the pandemic, since yeah. the, before the downturn. This seems to be, and I'm a Calgarian, I've been here since 1978, and it, to me it seems like we always have this in the conversation. Are we talking about an organic plan that keeps changing, or, or is there a magic bullet, Deborah?
1: Well, I think one of the things we have to just focus on a couple of things. One is it's great. We have a revitalization of our arts infrastructure downtown taking place between the Glenbow and arts commons. So that is also going to be a very important part of sort of increasing that flow of activity and vibrancy for downtown. So that's fabulous. The second piece that we have to really think about how we make this happen, and that is to bring more post-secondary students downtown to study and to live. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we really need to focus on next is how do we help those institutions uh, be able to take uh, over some of those buildings or become tenants in buildings? The reality is the post-secondaries don't have the money to to do those tenant improvements, so perhaps some of the dollars that are being eyed for uh, being converted to residential units, maybe they start to turn their eyes towards supporting the post-secondaries to come downtown and maybe help them turn uh, the buildings into class space, class slash uh, residential spaces for students as well. Because when you have students downtown, then it really starts to uh, come alive.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. You look at, you know, Toronto, for example, that's where I'm from. And yeah, when the university in the downtown core. And yeah. That brings the young people, and they usually stay down there too. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about that multi-million dollar surplus. We talked about that off the top, $147 right. million. Uh, Deborah, wave your Calgary Chamber magic wand. What would you do with it? Well, I would be looking at ways to, you know, there, there are obviously opportunities to, to, to uh,
1: you know, I'm a big fan of, of, um, of having uh, Stephen Avenue looked at very careful to see, mm-hmm. carefully to see how we can really sort of revitalize that to make it a, a draw as a high street for Calgary. So that would be one thing I'd be looking at. But I also would look at that number and I'd say, you know, this is somebody that could be supporting uh, the, the, uh, the draw of, four post-secondaries into, into the downtown core but we really need to look at other opportunities whether it's how do we make uh, businesses more accessible and broadly speaking I'd love to see some of that money going to um, retrofitting or expanding the outdoor pools that we have in the city that we know need some need some TLC
0: so that people can enjoy them during the summer. During the summer, and I always think about those indoor pools, and we're a winter city nine times out of ten. We need these, so that's an interesting we point. We do. We forget uh, about those. We've talked about the conversion of these office spaces to residential, the university students. I'm wondering, through the eyes of the Chamber and through your opinion, how important is the arena district, or if you call it the, uh, the entertainment district, how important would that be to the revitalization of downtown?
1: Oh, I think that's critical. I think we have to get that piece sorted out. Because that's a huge, not only from a, from an activity perspective and what it represents from a tax base, but also just to know that there's 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 it's a hive of activity that there are events taking place that it's not just a part of the city that's active either during Stampede or when there's an event at the Saddlons. There's so much potential in that Rivers District, and I think we really have to turn our minds to making sure that it's it's a comprehensive plan that includes an arena, it includes other aspects, so that people are really drawn to it. 365 days a year, uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the times when there are events taking place. So this is all those pieces fitting together, whether it's the, the, the Rivers District and the Entertainment Center, uh, the, the, which fits really well together with, with the National Music Center, and that flows into the arts revitalization infrastructure. We can have a very vibrant, exciting uh, downtown core. It's going to take time. And I think that's the one piece we have to all remember. We'd love to have, you know, when you asked about a magic wand, I'd love all of this to happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take several years. When we look at East Village, that's been a long project that has, you know, is, is paying dividends for, for the city today. But that was a long time in the makings. And so we have to sort of stand back and say, okay, what's realistic from a timing perspective?
2: And let's just let, let's have a plan and let's move forward on that plan. Thanks so much for your thoughts this morning, Deborah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah Yedlin. is the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, you can go online at calgarychamber.com.
0: Despite Canada's record low unemployment rate of 5.2% last month, many industries are still facing a labor shortage. Can companies mitigate labor woes with automation, perhaps? With Insight, we're joined by Grant Harvey, a Dan Kapp private equity chair and human organization at Western University. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Well, let's break this down because... Uh, how are we experiencing both a low unemployment, uh, unemployment rate and a labor shortage? It sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it?
3: It does indeed. But when we think about the um, the shift we've gone through in the last two years, both with the um, particularly the pandemic, which is um, which is obviously uh, limited the inflow of of migrant labor, and in Canada and the US, we've got um, an aging population. So these two factors are having a huge impact on the labour market. They're tightening the labour market. It does mean at the same time we've got this low unemployment but also a shortage of labour.
2: So, Grant, would this be as well as the factors you mentioned, another symptom of the pandemic as well?
3: Absolutely right. The, the pandemic is, is obviously um, the one thing it, it's done, it's, it's done some, you know, obviously some dreadful things. One of the things that it, it's done is prevented the movement of people. So what you don't have is um, the inflow of, of migrant labour that um, many economies, Canada included, have relied on, uh, particularly for the sort of the low skill um, uh, end of, of the labour market. So with that drying up, what you've got is a, a real difficulty facing employers, particularly small businesses, to find people to, to do the jobs that you know previously that there would have been um, people available for.
0: Well, let's talk about automation where does automation come in are robots going to be taking people's jobs or is that a bit uh, too sci-fi
3: well it's it's an interesting one there are two arguments uh previously that you know there's one of two things that happens with automation the first thing you know the, the, the sort of um the doomsayers of which i'm one would say well okay this this is going to have a negative impact if you if you're automating processes it's going to take jobs away now the counter argument would be that the automation process, the introduction of new technology, will actually redefine jobs. Rather than take jobs away, it will create new jobs because somebody's needed to look after the software, look after the machinery and so on. So the, the sort of the super positive view of this would be, well, actually what it does, it takes away all those really unpleasant jobs that, that nobody wants to do, the mundane, the physically demanding, and it actually creates jobs which are... Um, more challenging, upskilled, better paid, and so on. Unfortunately, I don't think um, the data has, has supported that um, that view. Certainly in recent years. And, and what we've got now, what I think is is really interesting, is that automation is is being used explicitly as this um, response to the shortage of labour. So we're no longer talking about does this create jobs. Automation is being presented as a means by which companies can. Uh, moderate the problem of um, a labor shortage
2: grant are, are there some companies we can look to that have been successfully able to maybe take a labor shortage for example and help it with automation are there are there some examples of that out there that we're, we know of
3: well we've we've got examples of of where automation has been um, introduced and has um it created uh, a new type of job in fact uh, we 've got a very good example recently when you, you look at Amazon and the jobs that are being created to support uh, the um warehousing but we've also we 've also got lots of evidence of of where this the encroachment of um, automation and particularly artificial intelligence is actually threatening jobs that were traditionally high skill and safe jobs now my area of of focus as, as being civil aviation and there are huge threats posed by artificial intelligence and automation for high skill traditionally career jobs so you think about people operating the, the, the flight deck airline pilots we think about um, air traffic controllers automation is is ha- is potentially having a, a huge impact on the the number of people necessary to do these jobs you know
0: you talk about the job creation and, and the opportunity for these jobs that have been created But, uh, you know, do we have the structure in place for the education to bring up Canadians in AI and in automation? Are we supporting that enough educationally in our country?
3: I think there's been a shift in in most economies. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm I'm a new settler to to Canada and I'm from the UK. There has been an emphasis um, across the globe, particularly in the older industrialized economies, um, for this, this emphasis on STEM subjects and this, this sort of drive towards, um, the future of work being something that is, is very much, um, very much sort of driven toward in, in this way. Whether we're doing enough now, that's, that's an incredibly difficult question to answer. And only time is going to tell, um, in, you know, and I'm talking about the kind of medium, the long term here, whether things are being done at the moment which would support the changing nature of work.
2: So, would you say is it a positive thing? Do you think then a greater automation is it going to be helpful and uh, and productive in the end for both companies and for workers?
3: Ooh, uh, we split those apart. It's, yeah. it's a great question, but if we if we think about you know where the the benefits are, certainly um, there is a benefit if you know uh, automation makes firms more productive, they can produce more, they, they can reduce cost, that's good for the consumer as well. In terms of workers, I'm not entirely sure. I've, I've got a fairly sort of um, negative view on, on how this this is going to play out, particularly in the context of what we're seeing at the moment, where automation is being seen as the answer to a labour shortage. And that that's, That is a, a very That's a shift that we've only seen recently. You know, previously it's been like, oh, we we need to automate. This makes things better. It's better for the employee, better for companies and so on. What we're seeing now is that automation is presented as this um, solution to the problem of a labour shortage. Now, a bit like um, green spaces and youth, once it's gone, you don't get it back. So my concern is now this this emphasis on automation and, and AI is potentially very bad um in the future and where it where it hits the economy as well Mm -hmm. in the past we've talked about an hourglass economy where the squeeze has been on the middle So you know you've still got these you've got lots of high-skill jobs um which you know for the development of software and machinery and so on. And you've got the low skill jobs, you know, the the dexterous work that you need human beings to do rather than machinery, but you get the squeeze in the middle. I think what we're moving towards, and there's a potential to move towards the conical flax shape, you know, where you've got a really narrow top and a, and a wide base. And, and that's the concern as well. So we don't have this upskilling um, impact of, of technology. What you've got is you're actually reduced in those high-skill and those mid-level-skill jobs.
0: Whereas this is high-tech, we're talking AI and we're talking robots, can we draw a parallel, kind of a history repeating in that, can we compare this to the Industrial Revolution and the assembly line of Ford, talking about all the jobs that would be taken and humans would be replaced? Can we take from that history and see that we, we still have jobs and there are still jobs, just we have to adapt? Well, certainly, there's
3: it, you, what you've got is a very good example of the assembly line, and that hasn't that hasn't you know um, uh, hasn't eliminated jobs. In fact, there's jobs jobs to support the assembly line. And that's often used as an example to say, "Well, look, what this has done is recreate work. It's taken away some of the work which which was you know um, uh, less positive experience for workers, and has created jobs to support it." Now, I, I think. Obviously, times have changed a hundred years since you know or more you know we're talking a lot more than that. Technology has changed where it's impacting how it's impacting, particularly artificial intelligence is having a far um more pernicious impact on higher skilled jobs rather than the kind of uh the fact that you know automation would eliminate these these lower skilled and and more demanding physically demanding and banal jobs. The change is now affecting higher-skilled professions. And there's an impact for, for it to... There's a possibility for an impact across the board. But that's the change. That's what we're seeing now in, in the contemporary era is where this impact is happening.
2: Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Grant. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Grant Thank Harvey, you. Dan Kapp, Private Equity Chair in Human Organisation at Western University. All I can think of is Lucy... On the conveyor belt there you
4: with the it. chocolate. They
0: have it. It's a different time. For <laughs> it sure. Is. As we continue our series on cannabis this morning, we take a look at what can happen when someone becomes dependent on cannabis. On air contributor Dave McIver
4: has more. When talking about cannabis, it can be easy to make light of the drug. In Hollywood, stoner movies can date back to the late 1970s with Cheech and Chong.
5: Hey man, am I driving okay? I think we're parked, man. In
4: the 90s with Dazed and Confused.
6: Say man, you got a joint?
4: Uh, no, not on me man. (laughs) It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> we even hear it in the music we listen to. Well, let me get to the point. Let's roll another joy. For some, it can be easy to think that cannabis isn't that harmful. But that wouldn't be true. According to Health Canada, it's estimated that one in three who use cannabis will develop a problem with their use. It's also estimated that one in 11 of those who use cannabis will develop an addiction to it. That statistic rises to about 1 in 6 for people who started using cannabis as a teenager. And if a person smokes cannabis daily, the risk of addiction is 25 to 50%. Now, I know what some people are thinking. I heard it too growing up. You can't get addicted to cannabis, man. Well, today, we'll do a little myth-busting when it comes to that. Janine Copeland is a registered psychologist and a Canadian Certified Addictions Counselor. She's here to help us out. Cannabis addiction isn't real. Is that true or false?
6: That is false, (laughs) 100% false, yes. We know without a doubt that uh, cannabis is addictive. It's an addictive substance like so many other substances. We psychologists kind of refer to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders when we are diagnosing a a range of mental health disorders. And cannabis use disorder is in the DSM-5. it's defined as as being problematic and and addictive and we typically characterize addiction as having several um key traits so one of them is tolerance right when when people are developing an addictive disorder they develop a tolerance to a substance, which means you need to use more of the substance to achieve the effect that you desire, right? And anyone who smoked cannabis or used cannabis knows that if you use it frequently enough, you need to use more to get the desired effect.
4: If we think a family member or a friend or even ourselves might be dealing with cannabis addiction, what are the signs the experts look for?
6: I would say not just cannabis addiction, addiction in general. Uh, we start to see really classic behavioral patterns, right? So people tend to lose interest in the things that they were once interested in. Um, I I see this a lot with teenagers, especially it's like, they'll be playing sports, they'll be really active in sports. And suddenly they don't want to play sports anymore. They just want to go hang out with their friends. And I I would say the same is true of adults, right? Losing interest in, in hobbies, losing interest in activities, less engagement with friends and family members. Often we see people change friends when they develop an addiction disorder because they tend to seek out people who are matching their behavior, matching their using patterns. Um, We'll see that. I mean, classic with with marijuana use specifically, we might notice that people are presenting as intoxicated quite frequently. Um, They might be secretive about their substance use. we might when, when we try to talk to them about their substance use, they become really guarded, defensive. We might hear them justify their use, um, blame others for why they're using as much as they're using. Uh, they become really, really protective over the substance.
4: Meggie Schluter-Dixon is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at the University of Calgary. She says that a cannabis addiction, like gambling or alcohol, is treatable.
5: Psychological treatments are still kind of the, are really the gold standard and like the best approach. If you're looking for treatment, the nice thing is there's a, there's a number of types that you can look at and they also vary in intensity. Um, But the majority of them, whether you're going to a program, whether it's a support group or group-based therapy, or even if you're doing it on your own, doing like a self-guided type treatment, the effective ones that we know are effective right now Um, really all involve two or three kind of key uh, components or types of interventions or or are drawn from kind of three key interventions. So the first of those is what most people have probably heard of before, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, So that really aims to help clients understand like the contingencies um, of their Um, you know, substance use, developing like relapse prevention and coping skills. Um, So really developing like greater awareness of what triggers like those cravings to use and the use itself and learning how to manage them or avoid them and identifying like high risk situations. Um, The second one is something called motivational interviewing or motivational enhancement therapy therapy. And this really looks at, like, enhancing and, or increasing someone's own motivation to change, right? Why are they there for treatment? What makes them think they might need treatment? And how can we increase that and really capitalize on that to kind of help them move forward? Um, and then the third is something we call contingency management. So contingency management strategies can also be combined, um, to kind of improve abstinence rates, so r- improve rates of not using altogether.
4: If you or someone you know might be dealing with addiction issues, you can always call the Addiction Helpline at one 332 2322
2: Since legalization, cannabis poisoning in pets has become a real issue. With some insight to help pet parents identify and prevent cannabis poisoning in their furry friend, we're joined this morning by Dr. Sarah Michelle, medical director for Vetster. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we have two people in our office who've had an accidental cannabis poisoning of their pet. So clearly it's not super rare. Just how common is cannabis
7: poisoning? Well, exactly as you said, since the legalization, it is something that veterinarians um, and pet owners are facing on a regular basis. Uh, you know, at, in, at the clinic level, uh, it's not uncommon to see, you know, one or two cases um, a, a week, depending on how busy the practice is. Um, and it's something that we can see in the ER setting on a, on a really regular basis now
0: as well. So, What are we concerned about? How harmful is it to, uh, if a pet ingests cannabis?
7: it's the concerns really come uh when it's a smaller pet, um, so smaller dogs and particularly cats, even you know surprising to hear, but they can get into things that they shouldn't as well um, and the The biggest problem and challenge for our pets when they consume this is that they don't tend to have any judgment on how much they're eating of something Uh, and you know they they haven't graduated or um, you know sort of built up any kind of tolerance and so they tend to eat you know if available they'll eat a large amount and then the dose that they're consuming can really be problematic for their little size. Fascinating so
2: they truly I'm not even joking they get the munchies as well. Well, I think
7: it's not so much that they get the monkeys after consuming it, it's that the consumables are appealing to them okay, and they don't have any concept of it's what's It's not the it. food
2: they're eating after, it's how much they're eating right. of, of the actual, cause <laughs> yes. it, it could be gummies or anything like that then, right? Yes,
7: yes, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: So we look at our pets, you know, you, you may have assumed, well, I guess whenever we're looking at our pets, if their behavior is different, you know, we get concerned as pet owners. So how can we differentiate a pet not feeling well in a pet that perhaps consumed cannabis?
7: Some of the symptoms that you may notice in your pet um, that might make you more suspicious for cannabis ingestion um, can be sort of sedation, wobbliness, sleepiness, trouble standing. And one of the interesting things that we almost consistently see in dogs who have consumed cannabis which is a little bit peculiar um, is that they can actually leak urine they lose the ability to kind of contain their urine Um, and so these if you notice these sort of strange behaviors and particularly if coupled with um, urine leaking the index of suspicion for the consumption of cannabis goes much higher Um, doctor do we run our our pet to the emergency room then or do we just wait it out with them well, I do always suggest if you have concerns, and and the reality is, is that you know the the possibility for consumption is there. It's always best to have your pet evaluated by a veterinarian, because um, you know again we don't know what kind of dose has been ingested, and uh, really serious you know, high levels of ingestion can lead to much more serious consequences. So significant reduction in heart rate, um, lack of consciousness, we can see vomiting and seizures. So I think it's if there's a concern, it's always best to have your pet evaluated um, and and to be able to put your mind at ease.
0: Those consequences, though, are those short-term, Dr. Michelle, or are there long-term consequences that could go along with this?
7: pet recovers from the exposure um, then generally there's no long-term consequences from it but with really high levels of ingestion some pets can actually succumb to the toxicity.
2: Really great information thank you so much for joining us this morning appreciate your time. Thank you very much have a wonderful morning. You too Dr. Sarah Michelle medical director for Vetster and you know, as I said, with two cases of it happening here, just in the, you know, small group of people that we know, yeah. it obviously is mm. an issue, whether it's oils or, you know, it doesn't mean it, it can be the medical cannabis too, right? That maybe the animals are getting into.
0: Well, and I guess you, you got to look even big picture and expand it. Well, maybe maybe the thought is that we're not treating cannabis if you use it in your home like we would a prescription. Mm, or something. Seriously. Yeah, yep. it, you know, and, and technically it, it, it is the, the same level as far as government you have to be over 18 you don't mm-hmm. need a prescription but you know it's it's. and maybe that's it maybe we have to look at in general and even taking it further beyond the pets and obviously our kids keeping things out of reach not Absolutely. just for the kids but also for the pets serious business and i'm not sure if my dog got into it back in the day but one day there was a whole week where domino's pizza just kept arriving and i said i didn't call and they said the person had a you <laughs> don't want to make light <laughs> you up. and the dog kept eating it you love pizza <laughs>